Well, good evening, everyone. And open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And Father, we again come to you in prayer, in speech, in thought, in conversation, Lord, to to put ourselves before you, and to ask you, Lord, to do what we know you love to do, and that's to speak into our hearts. Father, we in in our imaginations can draw back 2,000 years to that time when Jesus went up on the hillside and His disciples came to Him. I can see, Father, in my mind's eye, people gathering from all directions. Old and young, Father, small and, and large, and just gathering together, some families, some individuals, and just coming to hear from this marvelous teacher. And that's why we're here tonight, once again. Because even after 2,000 years, Jesus, You are a marvelous teacher. But we know You as so much more than that. We know You as our Lord, as our Savior, who was marvelous not only in teaching and, and in healing, in behavior and action, but wonderful in salvation. Completely sufficient to save. We look back and we have the privilege of knowing that you died on the cross and rose three days later. We look back and have the privilege of seeing that 40 days you spent after your resurrection. Teaching and speaking with people and appearing to as many as 500 brethren at one time. We have the the blessing, Father, of looking back and Jesus seeing you ascend into heaven. With all of this... We come before You again tonight to hear from You and to receive of Your Word. And we know that You do not disappoint. We don't come here to be entertained by Your Word, but to be changed and altered and moved into a different place. And this is my prayer tonight. Fathers, we enter into this sermon that Jesus is about to give and spend the next several weeks here We pray that You would alter our lives and change our hearts. Mold us after the pattern that Jesus set forth before us. And teach our our hearts, Father, to open our minds to what we have before us tonight. That we might understand. Come Holy Spirit and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've talked about the ministry triangle of Jesus, which included a 10 to 12 mile circuit between three cities. Two cities right there on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, one city just a little bit farther to the north, Capernaum right there on the sea, and Bethsaida, and and then Chorazin. And between these three cities, Jesus would spend the majority of His public ministry. The majority of His miracles, His teaching, His time spent, literally feet on the ground, was spent in that ministry triangle, that tiny little area. This is where his public ministry was birthed. This was his headquarters, Capernaum was, 
And this is the quiet place from which the shockwaves of grace and truth emanated out, reaching the whole of the world. It's pretty stunning to be there in that place and to see it because it's so unassuming and so beautiful, picturesque, but it's so out of the way that God would choose this place in which to begin His ministry. Early on in Jesus' ministry, we're told in verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain. And after He sat down, His disciples came to Him, and He opened His mouth and began to teach them. Now we can't pinpoint the exact pulpit that Jesus used, but we can make a biblically educated guess as to where this happened. That the mountain, or literally in verse 1, the rise was a grassy hillside on that northwest slope of the Sea of Galilee. If we look back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, we see Jesus was going throughout all the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them all. And large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea. And from beyond the Jordan, you can just see the people gathering from every direction to this small grassy hillside. I used to, as a child, when I heard about this Sermon on the Mount, I I pictured a, a dry desert area. Well, Galilee is not that way. And so as Jesus began to teach, the people could sit out on on pretty lush, grassy hills and listen in as the Master taught. The Sea of Galilee, it's, it's almost like a bowl surrounded on all sides by hillsides leading up into mountains that dip down with the sea there in the middle. And there are numerous natural amphitheaters all around the Sea of Galilee, which is why we don't really know exactly where Jesus taught from, but He could have taught from any one of these. There's a, a chapel up on one, we visited last time we were in Israel, and this chapel was it's a Catholic uh, chapel set up and kind of steals the thunder or the, or the joy of seeing the way maybe it was, but you can even look down from there and see how the hill just spreads downward. And how if someone were to stand toward the bottom and look up and speak, you could hear naturally without any kind of a sound system. Jesus could speak and be heard by a multitude with the blue waters of Lake Canaret below and behind Him. What do we know about the people who came? There have been some misconceptions about this. Some assume because it says His disciples came to Him in verse 1, that this meant the twelve. And that truly this teaching was only for that select few. The reality is, Matthew kind of pops a cork off of that one and shows us that far more than twelve people were present. If you look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, verse 28, it says when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at His teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Luke chapter 6 verse 17 tells us that Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. So we know it wasn't a high peak. It was more of a a level place where he stood to teach from. And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Zidon. So Jesus was likely above the Sea of Galilee, looking up at a sea of people gathered to hear from this remarkable rabbi. And Jesus begins to teach. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. And in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so begins what some have called, and what I agree with, the most important sermon that was ever preached. The greatest sermon ever spoken from the lips of a man, the Sermon on the Mount. But take note, in this sermon, Jesus is not preaching the gospel of salvation. As a matter of fact, for the next three chapters, Jesus does not refer to or preach the gospel at all. Up to this point, we know in his public ministry, Jesus was going about saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's not saying that here. He won't speak those words a single time. He's not saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and here's how to do it. Here's how to get there. Jesus, in this seaside setting, is not preaching the gospel of salvation. He's laying out the principles of the kingdom. He is giving for us a picture of what it means to truly enter into kingdom living. He's giving standards by which citizens of His kingdom could be and would be guided. That's what the Sermon on the Mount truly is about. Jesus offers these standards as the way by which His loyal subjects could be characterized as they wait for the day of His coming revelation. And therefore, Jesus speaks these words as much to you and to me today as He did 2,000 years ago. That these are the standards for kingdom living. Now, there's something I want us to grasp before we really get into this. Something we need to understand. Sunday morning, we talked about three aspects of our, of our humanity, of who we are. We talked about that each one of us is kind of a trinity. That we are flesh, we are soul, and we are spirit. The flesh being the carnal man. That the soul being the thought and, and intellect. And the spirit being truly who we are and who we will be eternally. Well, think about these three perspectives. Because when you come to the Sermon on the Mount, each one of these three aspects of who we are react or respond differently to the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe this is critically important to understanding what Jesus is doing here. To the natural man, to the natural man, this is a law of condemnation. Because if you approach the Sermon on the Mount in your flesh, you cannot keep it. As a matter of fact, it's life-rattling. Jesus didn't make it easier, He made it harder. He lays out these, these rules, these standards, and if we look at them as a law, from a flesh perspective, we realize Jesus has just raised the bar to an impossible place over what the Old Testament called for, which we already knew was impossible to keep. He comes along and makes it tougher, far more difficult than the perfect Old Testament law required. It moves beyond the external to the very thought life to a place that most of us have trouble controlling at all. Look down at verse 22. Jesus says, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Which means, every single person who's ever harbored angry feelings, or ever thought someone else was an idiot, is on a one-way path to hell. This being the case. 
Verse 28, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Which means that every man who's ever walked a summer beach in Southern California is an adulterer. These are the things that we have trouble controlling. Oh, I can hide it from you. I can keep it back from what you know is going on in my head. But I'll tell you what, what happens in there happens so fast. It's very difficult to control. And yet this is where Jesus sets the bar. Not out here, but in here. And in the heart. Schofield called this the law raised to the nth power. I like that. The Sermon on the Mount is the law raised to the nth power, beyond the capability of anyone to even approach if we look at it in the flesh. It's beyond impossible. Over in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus has just had a conversation with a a young man who's very well off. And he challenges him saying, hey, come and follow me, but, but first go and get rid of everything you have. Sell it all, leave it behind, and come follow after me. And the young man can't do it. He turns to his disciples in Matthew 19, 23, and he says, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And Jesus, looking at them, said, With people this is impossible, but you know the rest. With God... All things are possible. You see, in the natural view, rich meant righteous. To the Jewish mind, if you were well off, you were blessed, and therefore you were a righteous person. So if a rich person can't be saved, man, I'm sunk. I don't have a chance. You see, with the eyes and ears of flesh, the Sermon on the Mount is a law of condemnation. And that's the best you can get if you look at it in the flesh. But... To the eyes and ears of the soul. To the soul man, the Sermon on the Mount is an ethical litany for clean living. It's a litany for clean living. Some will view this teaching as a way for a person to clean up their act and continue to remain clean. It's a merit badge approach to the gospel. Oh, I just keep the Sermon on the Mount and I'm good to go. I just follow Jesus' teachings in those three chapters. In fact, the very most liberal wing of the church would say all I need is the Sermon on the Mount. The problem is, the gospel is not even proclaimed in the Sermon on the Mount. And without the gospel, we're stuck. Without the cross, we have no hope. And what is a very liberal view is also a very dangerous view because it relies on your righteousness to keep what Jesus says in these three chapters. But the soul man works it out. I can do this. I can keep this this law. I can keep this litany, these standards, this rule. But Jesus isn't saying, do these things and you'll be saved. He's saying, the saved do these things. That's a very different proposition. J. Vernon McGee points out that some have called the Sermon on the Mount all the religion I'll ever need. A fine example of Christian principles for good living. The problem is, you can't work it out. That's what the soul wants to do. We want to think through it, process it, and figure out a way to accomplish this. And no man can do that. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. The soul man approaches the Sermon on the Mount and says, if I can do this, I won't sin and I'll be good to go. Saved. But that's not what it's about. And it misses the point. Jesus said in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death and into life. So the Sermon on the Mount, walk with me on this, the Sermon on the Mount is not a law of condemnation as it would be seen in the flesh. It is not a litany for clean living as you might think of it in the soul. No, to the spirit man, it is the life of the citizens of the kingdom. It's the life of the citizens of the kingdom. Now you may say, well, Rick, I thought you said I can't live it out. You can't. You can't live it out in your flesh. You can't work it out in your soul. But Jesus invites us, as citizens of His kingdom, our visas stamped with the blood of Calvary, to consider these things in the Spirit. And that's the only way to approach the Sermon on the Mount. In the Spirit. Not as a burdensome condemning weight, nor as a list of rules to clean up our act. Paul said in Romans 8.3, What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.3, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ... And with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. He has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arrive envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of great gain. I share these verses with you because these describe body and soul people. These describe so often as far as we go, and we stop short of where we need to go, and that is to life lived in the Spirit. As we approach the Sermon on the Mount, I believe the Lord invites us to consider these things at a spiritual level. As people who have already been saved, who have our citizenship in heaven, and as people who only can keep this, can live by this, by the power of of the Holy Spirit in our life. The Sermon on the Mount game is a supernatural thing, not a natural thing. By the Spirit of Jesus, we are called to live as citizens of the coming kingdom. And in my flesh, I am burning up, so I'm going to take this off. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Paul says, You're no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Citizens of the kingdom. Remember that. Don't wallow in what you were. Walk in who you are. Philippians 3.20 Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, that is our view from the Mount. Look at these things spiritually. By the power of the Spirit. That's how I believe we're to look at the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm not going to comment on the first 12 verses. What we call the Beatitudes. In Latin, it's the Beatus which literally means blessed or happy. We're going to deal with those on Sunday. Take some time just to look at those. So let's continue on now with verse 13. Jesus said, You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Jesus is going to talk also about light, but he begins with salt. Salt and light, two powerful pictures of the impact kingdom citizens are supposed to have in this world. If we're living by the Spirit, then we will impact the world as salt. And the implications are clear here. Four quick notes about salt. Jesus uses this this word picture, this metaphor, because salt preserves trueness. Salt preserves trueness. Its presence holds back corruption and holds back decay. And that's part of the role of kingdom people. And it's even something, gang, we don't even really do. It happens in our being. What I mean by that is the presence, and I've shared this before, the very presence of the Bridge Christian Fellowship on North Whidbey Island, I believe, pushes back evil. Which is why more churches are better, in my mind. Bring it on. Because the more fellowships of believers in places all over the world, the more the tide of evil is stemmed, the more it's pushed back. And this is part of what salt does. It preserves That's our kingdom role. The church with Christ in us is to be a preservative in the world until the king returns. And that doesn't mean fighting back and it doesn't mean indicting the world against every form of corruption. It doesn't mean mean we put our soapbox out on the street and call down every sinner we see. It means that as we live and exist as kingdom people, evil has a hard time getting a foothold. That's not something we do. That is something the Holy Spirit does in us as we choose to live by Him. It's a light literally emanating from us, holding back the darkness. I've shared this verse so many times, you'll probably have it memorized, 2 Thessalonians 2.6, where Paul talks about, you know what restrains the man of lawlessness now, so that in his time he will be revealed. Talking about Antichrist. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And I personally believe that's the presence of the Spirit of Jesus Christ in the church. That that is the power that holds back the evil. That once the church is taken out, the Spirit goes with the church and evil comes in like a flood. But for now, the church is salt. You are salt. And by just your choice of living in the Spirit, you're preserving trueness until Jesus comes. Secondly, salt provokes thirst. You know, what's funny about the word salt is the more you say it, the thirstier you get. Have you ever noticed that? You just start saying salt. I know every time I say salt, and the more I say salt, and salty and saltiness and salted things, I just... It provokes thirst in us. Isaiah 55 verse 1 says, Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Revelation 22.17 The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take of the water of life without cost come. I like that. That connection again of the Spirit and the Bride of Christ and His church. And what is the church supposed to do? What is the role of salt in the world? To provoke thirstiness. As we live out life in the Spirit, as we call out the name of Jesus, it's the water of life that we're truly offering. But we can't offer what we don't have. Which is why Paul is so clear to be careful not to quench the Spirit. So we learn to live in the Spirit in such a way that it not only preserves the trueness that is in the world, but also provokes thirst. And number three, salt produces taste. 
Salt produces taste. If you've ever done this with fruit, and I'm sure you have, I'm assuming you have, where you pour a little salt on some fruit and how it just brings that sweetness out. Never forget the time I accidentally poured salt on cantaloupe and I thought I'd eat it anyway and I could not believe how good it was, how it just drew out the flavor. I remember as a kid, in my sack lunches, one of the, one of the things my mom put in there that, that was good, um, <laughs> hope, hope she doesn't ever hear that, she used to make these tuna fish sandwiches I told you about this before. My mom was a working mom. She was a teacher, and she worked very hard. And so to make the week a little bit easier, she would make my sandwiches for the week and freeze them. So by the time, you know, it got pulled out of the freezer in the morning and stuffed in the bag, and by the time I got to it at lunch, the bread was soggy, and there was a, like a hard tuna ball in the middle of it, you know. Awful. But the, the apples, she did right. She cut them all up, put them in a bag, pour a bunch of salt in there, zip it closed, and I was good to go. And I remember eating my crispy, sweet, crunchy, tasty apples and looking at friends of mine whose moms just cut the apples up and threw them in there. They were all brown and wormy and gross, and I thought, Mom, you got it right. Salt produces taste. It pulls the flavor out. And that's part of what we are to do. As believers in this world, we are supposed to be, and walk with me on this, we're supposed to be tasty people. Not bland flat and boring. We are not, the church is not to be a presence in the world where people go, I just didn't like the taste of that. Just left a bad taste in my mouth. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be tasty people. Think about it. Salt produces tastiness, especially when applied to fruit. And we are tasty as we are living by the fruit of the Spirit. The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things taste good. I don't care if you're a believer or not. These things taste good. Everybody likes to be loved. Everybody likes to experience joy. Everybody wants to be treated with kindness and gentleness. But we quench the Spirit, gang, and we lose our flavor. As Jesus says, if the salt loses its taste, it can't be resalted. Tasty salt or tasteless salt illustrates spiritless Christianity, religion that tastes flat. So he moves from salt and then he goes into light. He says in verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. It gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Light points out truth. It's what light does best. It illuminates so that we can clearly see what's going on. Paul says in Ephesians 5.13, all things become visible when they're exposed by the light. And then John, describing Jesus, said in John 1.4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then this interesting statement, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus' light was so glorious and beautiful, the dark of the world just didn't get Him. John says He came to the world that was created by Him, and the world just missed Him. came to His own, and His own people rejected Him. But to those who will come to Him and believe in Him and trust in Him, He gave them the right to become children of God. And Jesus called out in John 9.5, While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay, Jesus, well what about when you're not in the world? 
You're the light of the world. Jesus said, when I go away, it's going to be better than it is while I'm here. It's going to be greater. Because now, instead of one Jesus walking around the Galilee, there will be a bunch of little Christs all over the place. When I say little Christ, I mean Christians. That's what Christian means. Little followers after Jesus. And Christians filled by the Spirit of Christ now are a light that illuminates and emanates far further because of His power supernaturally than even when Jesus Himself walked in the world. And so Paul says in Philippians 2.15, Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Colossians 1.27 God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of His mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So while Jesus was in the world, He was the light of the world. But the moment He left, the Spirit of Christ descended. Remember, it was just ten days after that. Jesus hung around for 40 days. Ten days later, on the day of Pentecost, the light of the Spirit of Christ entered the apostles, was made available to all who believed in Him, and now the light was greater. Now that the Spirit of Christ is in you, is in me, is in the church, we are conduits of that light. You're the light of the world. By the way, it's kind of cool... At the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, John describes our new address as citizens of the eternal kingdom, a place called New Jerusalem. And he has this to say, Revelation 21.10, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain. He showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And he says later, the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. Look at verse 16 one more time. And so Jesus says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's another favorite verse of mine because that's exactly what Jesus did. You know, Jesus, as He went through His public ministry, as He taught, as He preached, as He healed, as He listened, as He walked about the Galilee, Jesus never drew attention to Himself. He lived his life in such a way, he let his light shine in such a way that when people saw what he did, they said, praise God! Glory to the God of Israel! It's amazing to me. Matthew 15.31 tells us the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So Jesus begins here, after talking about the road to happiness that we'll cover again on Sunday, Jesus begins and says, you're salt... Be tasty and your light. Be bright. He goes on in verse 17 and says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, their alphabet, is the Yod. The Yod is the tenth letter in the alphabet and it looks like an apostrophe. It's just a tiny little letter. Jesus says, even the Yod in the law will not pass away until all things are accomplished. Even the Yod is important. And he says, the stroke. The stroke refers to that tiny little line or mark on a Hebrew letter that changes the letter into another one. For example, it would be like our letter P. All we do is draw a line and now it's an R. That's what the stroke is. Jesus is saying the two most infinitesimal, tiniest little parts of the law will not pass away. 
The law is perfect. The law is here. And I was thinking about this, and you know, sometimes we argue over the big points of doctrine. We get into big doctrinal debates about the large things that matter while Jesus kept the tiniest stroke. The most insignificant things that we so quickly forget or pass over, Jesus kept those. Is the Word of God perfect? Is the Bible infallible? Jesus apparently thought so. He comes along and He elevates Holy Scripture and its perfection, which the higher critics of today would challenge, and which the emergent church of today would undermine. Jesus takes the Scripture and He elevates it. And He lifts it up. And He fulfills the entire law. How did He do that? Three things. Jesus fulfilled the law, number one, by His obedience. Number two, by His death. And number three, by His Spirit. He fulfilled the law by His obedience, by His death, and by His Spirit. Listen to this. By His obedience, Jesus labeled the law as perfect. In that He kept it perfectly, He showed that the law in and of itself was in fact perfect. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Isaiah 42.21, the Lord was pleased for His righteousness sake to make the law great and glorious. Now here's the deal. For the person who's walking in the Spirit, not the flesh, because the flesh can't keep the law at all, not the soul, because the soul thinks it can and tries to and messes up gloriously, but the person who's walking in the Spirit, for that person, the Word of God is not cumbersome. It's not a heavy weight. If you're walking in the Spirit, you come in and go out of Bible study and you go out lighter than when you came in. You don't go out with, with things to do and a weight of law and, oh man, this is heavy stuff. You walk out happier, holier, better. If you're approaching the Word of God in the Spirit as spiritually intended. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount does not make things harder. It makes things more glorious when approached in the Spirit. Jesus fulfilled the law, revealing its grandeur and its glory. By His obedience, He labeled the law as perfect. By His death, He disabled the law's claims on the lawbreaker. By His death, He disabled the law's claims against the lawbreaker. Romans 8.10 says, If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Romans 10.4, Paul writes, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He fulfilled the law. Again, in His obedience, labeling it as perfect. In His death, He disabled it and its claims against the lawbreaker. And number three, by His Spirit, He fulfills the law. In that, He enables His disciples to walk in confident righteousness. And that's, that's the deal, game. That's the thing that even as a young Christian growing up in the church, that's the thing I, for years and years, could not understand. This pursuit of a perfection that I could not reach. This doing everything I could but realizing I was still a sinner. In fact, the older you get, the more you realize what a sinner you really are. Have you noticed that in your life? It's just more mileage behind you, more wreckage, <laughs> more of the reality of how serious this sin nature is. But in the Spirit, we are enabled to walk in a righteousness we should not be able to walk in. We shouldn't be able to walk around and say, hey, we're saved, we're Christians, we're loved by God. We should not be able to say that. We can say that 
Because Jesus provided it by His Spirit. Romans 8.11, Paul says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And so Jesus comes along and says, The law hasn't passed away. I don't come to destroy it. I have fulfilled it in every sense. The tiniest stroke, the smallest letter, I have made it right. He fulfilled everything that needed fulfilling. Verse 19, he goes on and says, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This was a shock. People gathered around on that grassy hillside would have heard this and said, did you hear what he just said? Someone in the very back is going, did he say blessed are the cheesemakers? I'm not sure what, what was that that he was saying. But as they listened in, as they dialed down and grew quiet and listened to what Jesus was saying, someone would repeat, he just said we have to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. You can almost hear a rumble spread out among the crowd. Impossible. What's he talking about? No way we can do that. There was a saying in Jesus' day that went something like this. If only two men made it into heaven, one would be a scribe and the other would be a Pharisee. Because the people looked at these these outwardly showy religious stuffed shirts. The scribes and the Pharisees, they looked at them and they said, those are the perfect guys. They're the ones who have it together. Not me, sitting in the pew. No, those are the guys who, who, who really have it dialed in. The scribes were the Bible scholars of the day. The endless studiers, interpreting and commenting on the law. They were the ones who could walk down the street tearing massive scrolls and someone could go, excuse me, scribe, could you explain this? And, oh yeah, so that's just, oh, 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 and say something. And it didn't even matter if it made sense. They just have to say, well, he's a scribe. <laughs> Holy man. The Pharisees. Even the word Pharisee, it means separated one or literally distinguished. They were the distinguished among the religious sorts. Very clean, very righteous. Sticklers for the law. Keeping every little bit of it, or at least pretending that they did. It was a company of about 7,000 men in Israel who distinguished themselves as the most particular keepers of the law. So the people would hear this, i got to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm out. I think the only reason why everyone didn't leave Jesus at that time was they were so hooked on what He was saying and they just couldn't believe, what's He going to say next? Where's He going to take us next? Gang, the reality is that neither group, the scribes nor the Pharisees, could hold up to the standard that Jesus was about to lay out. This is such a powerful sermon because He sets it all up. This is not just a bunch of random sayings. He sets it all up. He says, you've got to be better than the scribes and Pharisees. You've got to surpass them. Well, how in the world do we do that? Jesus now lays out a line of teaching that would put the scribes and the Pharisees on notice. In fact, would put any thinking person on notice because where the law draws the line at the actions of the hands, Jesus now gets into the attitude of the heart. He goes deeper than anybody expected. Verse 21, he says, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And by the way, just so you know as we're going through this, Jesus is quoting both from the law of Moses and from the popular rabbis of the day. Saying you've heard it was said by the ancients you shall not commit murder. Well, that's one of the Ten Commandments, of course. 
But then the very next line after that, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Well, that would be then the rabbi's interpretation of the law of murder, their application of it. And Jesus is going to do this throughout. He'll say, you have heard. And he'll draw from the old law or he'll draw from the rabbi's commentaries. And then he says, verse 22, but I say to you, that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And everyone who says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And Hannah, whoever says, you fool, oh, I'm sorry, to your brother, if you're just, just making an application. And if you say these things to your brother, it doesn't matter if you're in trouble with me, you're toast. According to Jesus. She gives me that look. It's going to follow me all the way home. <laughs> Whoever says to his brother, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. The attitude of the heart. The Pharisees were very good with the hands. Washing the hands. Living out things the way they were supposed to. But inside, Jesus would later say, they were like tombs. Whitewashed on the outside and dead and corrupt on the inside. They were like a cup that was washed on the outside but filthy on the inside. Jesus is going to turn this whole thing up on end. Well, so, so is Jesus saying I can't be angry? No. No, He's saying if your anger leads you to this. Jesus, instead of dealing with putting the fence at your hands, He goes all the way back to the heart and says, let's talk back here. Let's talk about motives. Let's talk about attitude. And Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. And that's the issue, Jesus says. Check your anger at the door of your heart before it runs headlong into murder. Before it's acted out, check it here. He then goes on to explain the opposite of murderous thinking. The opposite of murder, gang, is reconciliation. Verse 23. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother Then come and present your offering. Have you noticed that when you're in worship or when you're praying, that that tends to be the time when personal conflicts come to mind? Have you noticed how hard it is to continue worshiping when that personal conflict comes to mind? See, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. It's hard to worship and pray when my relationships are out of whack. There's that little voice in the back that says, you're not as holy as you think you are. This thing's not working here. You have a problem with so-and-so. You have an issue with this person here. And if this little voice comes in, and it's the voice that I would just assume, shut up, turn up the amp, and worship louder. You know, just ignore it. But notice what Jesus says in verse 23. He says if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering and go take care of it. He's not talking about keeping a list of all the people who have problems with us so that we can go around and and, and fix them. He's talking about if you're coming before the altar of God, if you're coming to worship, and suddenly that voice comes into your head and says, I want you to deal with this. He's talking about going to it. Let's let the plane fly over. I think the indication here in verse 23 is that the Holy Spirit reminds you and reminds me of the things that need fixing. And it's often in that place of worship because that's probably the first time during the week where we've dialed down enough to hear. And that's where the the Lord says, 
you got this family problem going on. Why don't you take care of that? I think it's interesting also that Jesus said the Spirit reminds you of a problem at the altar. The altar gang is the place of sacrifice. The place of sacrifice. I say, oh Lord, I'm willing to give it up for you. Here I am, Lord, send me. And my flesh and my soul gets very excited about big sacrifice. But the Spirit says, I'm more interested in the little quarrel you had with Aunt Bessie before you came to church this morning. Why don't you go make it right? I hear that and I say, Lord, I'm talking about going to Africa. And you want to send me to Aunt Bessie? I want to do a big thing for you. Oswald Chambers in his devotional for today, September 24th, said the following. This is powerful. Listen to this. Never discard a conviction. If it is important enough for the Spirit of God to have brought it to your mind, it is that thing He is detecting. You are looking for a great thing to give up. God is telling you of some tiny thing. But at the back of the tiny thing, there lies the central citadel of obstinacy. I will not give up my right to myself. The thing God intends you to give up if you are ever going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is, this is completely countercultural teaching, the teaching of Jesus. He spins everything around. And he says, you want to do the great big things, but before you do the big things, before you come to the altar for sacrifice, why don't you deal with the little things, the arguments you had yesterday with your friend? Deal with that first. Let's get real. I believe Jesus is saying. Verse 25, he goes on and says, Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with them on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you'll not come out of there until you've paid the last cent. Jesus gives this picture of debtor's prison where people in the day would go if they had a debt they couldn't repay. they go into prison until they could repay it. Does that make sense to anybody? And yet that was the way of it. You've got to go to prison until you can come up with the money to get yourself out. Okay, but if I'm in prison, how am I going to get the money to get myself out? It was a catch-22. And Jesus is showing us how unresolved conflicts and relationship messes bind us up and hold us prisoner. We get into those places because we have not reconciled and we can't get out. And Jesus says, look, before you get there, make it right. Make it right. There is kingdom freedom in reconciliation. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.18, God reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Take that verse and apply it to you. Listen to it this way. Christ was in Rick reconciling the world not counting their trespasses against them. He has committed to Rick the word of reconciliation. How many people in your life do you count their sin against them? How many times do I see someone that has hurt me and go, yeah, I'm counting. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love forgets. Love sees the person who has wronged you in the worst sort of way and says, I can't even remember what's wrong here. Let's just, let's just be in a relationship. That's tough stuff. 
That goes way beyond the law in terms of how I treat other people. That is kingdom living. Go make it right. It's hard teaching. But you know what? When we got the kingdom, we got nothing to lose. We got nothing to lose. Even with people who would sue you, Jesus says, for all your worth, Jesus would say, take the downside in favor of reconciliation. But what if they take advantage of me? What if they do? What if they sue me and I lose my house and my cars and my my income? What if they do? Gang, we're citizens of the coming kingdom. (laughs) That's where our retirement plan is. In Christ, we have gained everything. What have we got to lose? We were having this conversation Sunday at an elders meeting and talking about how when we first started the bridge, it was really easy because we didn't have anything. We had no budget. We had no savings account. We didn't own any land. We had no possibility of building. All we had was a family who said, yeah, you can meet in our living room. So we had nothing to lose. It was easy to step out in faith. Some people say that must have been hard in the early days. No, it was easy because we couldn't lose anything. If nobody showed up, if nobody gave, oh well, (laughs) we didn't have it in the first place. You can't lose something when you don't have it. Here we are five years later. We own land over on Troxel. Equivalent of what? $250,000 worth of land. Owned, free and clear. We've got a good, healthy savings and and checking account. We've got staff that, that we pay. We've got opportunities before us. We're looking at building a building and all this stuff. And now... It's very easy to say, boy, we don't want to mess it up. We don't want to blow the gifts that God has already given us. We have so much. And it was on Sunday as we were talking about this that we realized, you know, we need to maintain the attitude that we have nothing to lose. What if something went wrong with the land and the county said, nope, can't build there. And now we've got this land that literally is worthless to us. What if some bizarre incident happened by which the church got sued and lost everything in the account and the land went bye-bye and and here we are just kind of huddled around and the the heater went out? What if we lost it all? (laughs) Okay. What if we did? I'm still a citizen of the kingdom that is coming. Everything, all of my eggs are in that basket. And when I walk with that kind of faith by the Spirit, i got nothing to lose. And I believe that's the way the Lord would have us walk. Verse 27, You've heard it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, Everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That verse, when I was young, blew me away. I I, I think I shared before, I was a teenager when I read it, and just went, Oh man! Lord, that's not fair! I never wanted to commit adultery, and now I just realize... (laughs) Verse 29, he says, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's far better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And people ask, Is he serious about the whole right eye, right hand thing? I mean, honestly, if that's the case, if that's what Jesus meant, (laughs) box me up and mail me off UPS because I'm done. There is nothing of me left. Because I've been offended by every inch of my body at one point or another. 
My hands have offended me. My eyes have offended me. My nose has offended. Every part of my body has offended me. And so according to Jesus, there's nothing to Rick left. Throw it all out. But remember again, this is not a litany of how to be saved. This is not how to maintain my salvation. Jesus did that on the cross. The Sermon on the Mount is a call to kingdom living. Jesus is laying out the pattern, the standards, and He's saying, man, live this way. Make it so serious that you would rather lose your eye than lose your salvation. That you'd rather keep your place in the kingdom than mess with any of these other things. They're just not worth it. But it gets tougher. Jesus takes it to a more difficult level, but stay in the Spirit. Listen carefully, verse 31. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. One of the most controversial passages in Scripture ever written. Rick, what do you mean? Do you believe divorce is sin? And that remarriage to a divorcee is adultery? Jesus addresses this issue again in Matthew 19, so we get to talk about it one more time in this study. And based on what He says both here and there, I have to honestly say, yes. Now stick with me. Jesus means what He said. Let me read it again. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity, that is marital unfaithfulness, that's an affair, makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Just because our culture has changed does not mean the Word of God has changed. I believe He means what He says. That yes, this is sin. But, listen, remember, Everyone who's ever looked at a woman with lust for her in his heart has already committed adultery. What's the difference between that man and the guy who got divorced? No difference. Both committed adultery. Jesus is pointing out the truth that we are sinners. And that sin is a heart issue, not a hands issue. It's a decision issue, not an action issue. It starts back here. Let me add this. Adultery is a sin. Divorce in and of itself, except for marital unfaithfulness, is also a sin. But I don't believe Jesus is saying that remarried couples live in an unforgivable, revolving state of everlasting adultery. That's not what He's saying. In fact, the Bible is very clear about this. There's only one unforgivable sin. You remember what it is? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit. To say the Holy Spirit is not who the Holy Spirit is which is what was happening when Jesus made that comment. In Matthew 12.31, He said, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Jesus makes that comment at a time when people were looking at Him and saying, you have Beelzebub in you. You are, an act, uh, uh, you are acting for Satan. You're an agent of the enemy. And Jesus says, watch it. You're treading on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And this will not be forgiven. So what does that say about divorce and remarriage? Forgiven. Forgiven. 
Let me tell you what doesn't make any sense whatsoever in the flesh, the soul, or the spirit. It doesn't make sense for someone who has been divorced and remarried to say, oh, I guess i got to divorce this husband so I can go back to the first one. Does that fit in anyone else's framework? And yet I've had someone say that. Should I do this? Should I divorce him and go back to him? Because, and even though he doesn't want me, but, and he, this is okay here, but should I cut this off? And go? It's all a mess. And as I've shared before, you know why God hates divorce. Because it hurts. Because it hurts us. Because it's messy in life. And those of you who have gone through it, and I know a number of you have, and, and you know, if you're sitting there feeling bad about yourself, try being me. I haven't been divorced, but the whole, you know, looking at a woman with lust in her heart, I mean, that just really upsets me. I'm not talking about right now. I'm happily married. I'm talking about when I was a teenager living in Southern California. I mean, come on, verse 28 was a killer for me. Gang, we're all sinners. We're all murderers by this standard. We're all adulterers by this standard. But again, the Sermon on the Mount is not the law of salvation. It's the standard of kingdom living. Jesus is trying to elevate us out of the flesh, out of the soul, to the place of the Spirit. And in verse 33 it says again, You've heard the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, Make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of His feet. Or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great King. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. I don't care how much dye you use. The real color's under there, ladies. <laughs> what it says. You cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil. You've heard it that, was, that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. During this time, under the Roman occupation of Judea and Samaria, Roman law stated that a soldier could tap you on the shoulder with his spear and you had to carry his stuff, his bags, his armor, whatever he had, you had to carry it with him at least a mile. So these people hearing Jesus say that would understand. He's saying if one of these filthy Gentile Romans forces me to go one mile, I should continue on one more? You've got to be crazy, Jesus. Give the shirt off your back. And by the way, while you're doing it, give your coat too. Turn the other cheek. You got pain here? Go for it on the other side. These are radical, countercultural, and effective kingdom principles for spirit-led people. Because nothing disarms an enemy faster than a refusal to fight back. That's what Gandhi did. Gandhi, though not a Christian, though not spirit-led, not a believer, Gandhi read the Sermon on the Mount and applied this principle to nonviolent opposition to the law. He would fast where others would fight. And because of that commitment to nonviolence, the entire British army that had control of lower India at the time was driven out. Because of this teaching. Martin Luther King Jr. applied the same principles. Martin Luther King Jr., who was a believer, took the kingdom principles as a spirit-led man and absolutely shook our nation with the issue of civil rights. 
These kingdom principles are upside down by the standard of the world, but they work when led by the Spirit. So verse 43, Jesus said, You've heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Seven times in this chapter alone, Jesus says, You have heard it said, but I say. The ancients said, the law of Moses said, but I say to you. Which is why in verse 48, oh I'm sorry, which is why at the very end, chapter 7, verse 28, It says the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. Remember what the scribes did? They took the law and they explained it to people. Jesus took the law and he said, okay, this is what the law says. Here's what I say. This is what the law says. Here's what I say. He made it about himself. He took an authority that you and I know he had and he applied it here And it blew people's minds. He's not talking like one who's under the law. He's talking like one who's fulfilled the law. He's talking like one who is greater than the law. You've heard it said, but I say to you, he's not only lifting his own teaching above that of the great rabbis like Hillel or Shammai, he's lifting his teaching gang above the teaching of Moses. John wrote in John 1.17 that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And he had the right to do it. Now, we're going to stop here for tonight. But we stop with these words ringing in our ears. Verse 48, Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I hear that phrase, and I think that is perfectly impossible. Ironside, in his commentary on this book, said, Surely every right-thinking person must admit that the righteousness inculcated by our Lord in this matchless discourse is a standard far beyond that to which the natural man can attain. It is only when one has been born again that he can begin to live on this higher plane. Our Master portrays a supernatural life which can be lived only by supernatural power, that power which the Holy Spirit gives to him who believes in the Gospel. So here at the end of chapter 5, I encourage you with two chapters to go in this Sermon on the Mount, buckle up, prepare yourself, because we are into some radically life-altering teaching here. Be careful. Because if you accept Jesus' words on the mount, if you take them in, in the Spirit, you may be in for some supernatural change in your life. That's what I'm looking for anyway. Let's pray together. Jesus, Your words are awesome and they get in where nothing else can. And Lord, I'm amazed. I look at these words again and I I watch how You begin to lay it out and how You show us the beauty and the perfection of the law and that You kept it all. And and Lord, that that you, You were fulfilling it and not driving it away. And then You take us to the deepest place. 
A place that was not even understood or realized before. As we see the heart of the Father in giving the law. So we stand here convicted and we look at our own lives and we know. We know there's sin. But we walk with confidence forgiven by Your blood, Jesus. And we ask only that Your Spirit would do supernaturally in us what we naturally cannot do. That You would teach us how to be citizens of Your kingdom and how to walk out all these things. And we pray this to Your glory. And in Your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, again, Sunday morning, we'll come back and we'll look at the Beatitudes and the positive pathway to to absolute happiness as Jesus gives it to us. So good night and God bless you all.